And I said, I can't hardly wait to preach it. And she said, what is it? I said, falling in love all over again. And her dark eyes looked at me and she said, who with? I said, you just wait and see. Amen. <laughs> Let me just share with you tonight at least five people or things that God wants all of us to fall in love with all over again. Now, I'll just mention first and all the rest will hinge on the first one. And of course, that's Christ. You know what we need to do tonight? Let's be honest. I often say this, honest people can do business with God. But I wonder tonight, do we really love him? Are we really in love with him like we was when he first saved us? I wonder if it's still real. I wonder if it's still exciting as it was when we was on our honeymoon experience with him. I wonder if we still thrill at his voice as he speaks to us from his word. If you're in love with someone, you delight in being in their presence, and you long to hear the voice of someone you love, if you're truly in love with them, it delights your soul when you hear their voice. The Lord Jesus Christ said to a church, he said, now you've got a lot of works. He commended them for their works, and I'm for that. He said, you've labored, you haven't fainted, you've got patience, you're orthodox, you're fundamental, you wouldn't join the council of churches, you've tried them that say they're apostles, you found out they're not fundamentalists, they don't believe the Bible, and said, you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's the church hierarchy, that's setting up uh, bishops and popes and potentates and all that business over God's work. He says, I hate that too. You're orthodox, you're fundamental. He said, you're as straight as you can be. But you're cold in your heart. You haven't quit preaching. You haven't quit witnessing. You haven't quit singing. You haven't quit knocking on doors. You're still giving out tracts. But he said to the best church, I think, that was ever on this earth, the church at Ephesus, he wrote the deepest letter to them But he did anyone else. The baby church over in Corinth, they couldn't have stood that deep letter of meat of the Ephesian church, but he wrote to them, and 25 years after he died, he said, you don't love me anymore. You're gone. You don't walk with me like you used to. You don't read the word like you used to. You don't thrill at my voice like you used to. And he said, I commend you for all of these other things. But he said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You have left your first love. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. Who is the Christian's first love? You say the Bible. Wait a minute. Bible's not the first one you met. You know, the first love is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself made real to us by the Holy Spirit that moves in when we get born again. The moment a Christian gets born again, the Holy Spirit of God takes up his abode and he seals us to the day of redemption. He'll never leave you. He's the seal himself and he magnifies Jesus Christ. Amen. I've never been to Sunday school in my life. I'm not bragging about it. It's nothing to brag about. I've never been to Sunday school. I didn't know what they did at Sunday school. I was 25 years old and God saved me. Never been inside of a Sunday school. I've been to church two or three times and joined the church, but that's all that happened. I went forward and joined the church, signed the book. They put me on the water, but I went in a, a dry center, came out a wet one, and it didn't change my life. And the only thing in the world to change your life is an old-fashioned, a personal uh, confrontation with Jesus Christ. Just get born again. Amen. So I got saved on a Monday night, the 6th of April, at 10.30. It'll be 12 years this coming April. God saved my soul. I got under Holy Ghost conviction. And I often say, well, you do not have a conversion until, first of all, you have conviction. And we're in the age today where it's popular to join something, sign up with someone, and groan in sin. I used to say to our folks, and I'll mention soul winning in a minute, don't judge me yet. I believe we ought to be soul winners, and it don't take you a long time to get saved. I'd been confused. The man had asked me some things that I'd done. I said to him, sir, I've done about everything a sinner could do. He had me believing perhaps God wouldn't even save me. 
And I was so full of stinking pride that I wouldn't even talk to people about my need. That's one of the, that, that's one of the sins that'll put more people in hell than any other sin because we like to feel self-sufficient. We don't like to admit that we have to depend on God. We like to feel like that we're independent of everyone else, God and everybody, and we'll make it ourselves. I was that way. I went to a Baptist deacon who was my oldest brother. I went to him on a Monday night, or rather on a Friday night. He lived in New, New Wanamaker in that area. I live in the Eastgate area of Indianapolis. I worked for the army at Fort Benjamin Harrison. When God saved me, I was a civilian employee there. And I went out to him. I'd been under conviction for about two or three weeks. And I went out to my brother and to show that my pride and self-sufficiency, I told him there was a fellow at work asking me questions about the Bible. And I said, I don't know anything about the Bible. But I said, that fellow's full of questions. And I said, maybe you can help me. And I said, the fellow's mixed up and confused. And I'll help him if I can. And I asked my brother about three questions. You know who wanted the answer and need the answer? You're looking at him right here. My brother said, here's what to tell him. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. He said, God says, you come and let us reason together. He said, away with this stuff of walking every step back that the way you've gone. He said, you can't take every step back. If you're sorry for your sins and repent, God will forgive you right there. It's by grace you're saved. Boy, I got a little hope in here again. And you know where he went? He went to the thief on the cross. And he showed and read that beautiful story and told me how a man that was condemned to die... And there he was hanging on the cross and he said, no doubt, wicked and he's a murderer and he's a robber and he's a thief and on and on he went. But he said that man only prayed. It didn't take him an hour to pray to get saved. He said he just prayed a simple prayer of about nine words and said, God said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I left his home with a new hope beating in my breast. My wife was a Roman Catholic. I was a Baptist. Both of us was lost. Never had, never had to either one of us even know anything about saved or born again. I'd gone and heard a fellow preach over on the south side of Indianapolis just two or three weeks prior to that. I said the other evening about it. That fellow had the longest index finger of any man I ever seen. Boy, he just pointed and slobbered and preached and so on. And I said to my wife when we got home, I said, what's born again mean? She said, I never heard of it. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. I was a Baptist, but I didn't know either. That Monday night, as on Friday my brother talked to me, Monday night, tornado in Indianapolis on the 6th of April, 12 years ago, it blown away houses out on the northwest side of Indianapolis and turned over trailers all out around work that night. I left the house about 10.30, had to be at work at 11. I got in my car, I'd gone into my bathroom and closed the door. Got down on my face beside the bathtub, cried and prayed. Someone had misled me about feeling and everything else. And I thought because some some great feeling, emotional feeling, then I wouldn't believe God. I wouldn't take God. I had renounced my sin. I know you don't get born again till you renounce your sin. But if you'll be honest and renounce your sin and repent and then believe this blessed book, God will save you because God cannot lie. And I've been misled, but I got in my car and thank God he'll save us in, in spite of our ignorance if we're sincere. Amen. And I got in my car and started to drive out of the driveway and did something I'd never done in my life. I got back out and walked up and my wife had closed the night lock on the outside door. I pecked at the door and I tried to keep a straight face and tears just literally came down my face. I said to her, honey, I'll never talk with you about anything like this, but I said, do you know how to pray? And she went to cry. She said, call, call in tonight and take off. And I said, no, I've got to be there. I sort of a foreman that had to start the work. And I said, I've got to be there. The manager would have to come in if I don't go. And I said, I've got to go. But I said, I've got to have help. 
I said, I hate to say this, but I said, I'm about to lose a reason for even living. I said, I've never been in this condition. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I said, if you can pray, maybe God can help me. Boy, I got in the car and the lightning was flashing and the thunder was rolling and I backed out of my drive and we lived right off of Post Road near Eastgate and I came out to Ford and down to Post Road and I got right to Post Road and Highway 67, a bar on this side where I usually stopped. I prayed three words. No begging. No pleading. I remember something my brother said to me on Monday night. He said, you tell that fella when he's willing to do it on God's terms, when he's willing to just say, Lord, take over. I'm through with sin. I want to be saved. You tell him God will save him right there and then. Boy, like a flash, the Spirit of God brought that back through my mind. And the three words I prayed was, God, save me. And I was stopped at a red light. I'm not exaggerating. God, here's what I say. I laughed. I hollered. I shouted. I put my hands in the air. A fellow behind me was blowing the horn. And I about settled down up to see. I was sitting through the light. And he pulled up to go around me in the street light there where he could see me. And I had both hands waving at him like that. He just shook his head and went on through. I got out there at the shop and I tried to straighten my face up and I pulled up on the base and showed my ID to get in. The guard looked me over and they kept an eye on us at night around there anyway. He said, Hurt, what's wrong with you tonight? How you tell a fellow you only been saved five minutes? How you tell it? I didn't know how to tell him from a scriptural definition. And I said, I don't know all that's involved, but I said, I believe God saved me right back out that way. He said, no law against that, I guess. Go on. I went downstairs and I never knew that I'd uh, really didn't realize that I'd been so hard to get along with for two or three weeks. Those fellows that worked for me told me, said, you've become so overbearing in here. My wife told me, said, you'd got so cantankerous and ill-spirited, you couldn't stay in the house, will you? I walked in that night, and I'm honest about it. There was a big mirror there in the dressing room, and there was a colored boy who went to work with me. They called him Jitterbug. And he was sitting over here putting his shoes on. And When I walked by, the expression on my face... I didn't even realize it. I had to stop and look. I'd been moping around and, you know, I mean, they look, look like the average Baptist, you know, with a frown on his face and walking around all the time. And boy, I passed behind. I had to stop smiling, laughing, crying. Old Ernest, we called him Jitterbug, but old Ernest, he's a saved person now. He looked up at me and they called me Pop. Those boys did because I stayed on them all the time. He said, Pop, what's wrong with you tonight? I said, Ernest, I believe God just saved me up the road. He said, I believe he did. <laughs> I had the privilege of, I went to his home and won him to God about a year after that. Him and his wife both got saved. I was preaching just a few months ago in a, in a, in a church west of Indianapolis. He lives up that way. I saw a colored family in the service that night and the longer I preached, my eyesight's a little bad, a little bad toward the back and that's the reason I preach so long. I can't see that clock. I have to have some excuse, you know. But, uh, I can't hardly make out who folk are in an auditorium if it's a little longer than this. And so I noticed there's a colored family and while I was a preaching, I, I, I glanced back at him a time or two and I thought, that's old. Ernest Brown, sure is the world. And I said, is that who I think it is? He waved his hand at me. I said, you mean you still saved? He said, I'm going to stay saved. Amen. Oh, listen to me tonight. Those were sweet days. I got saved on a Monday night. My dad was lost. My mother's lost. My brothers was lost. My wife was lost. My mother-in-law was lost. Our entire family was about lost. I came from a large family of 12 children. My family was lost. Six us boys and six girls. I'd take a vacation on Friday. I went and told him, I said, listen, my vacation's not due. I understand the middle of July, but I broke down and wept right in the big main office. And I said, 
I've got saved this week, and I said, my folks is lost and going to hell, and I've got to go down there, and I don't believe that I'll have enough time on the weekend. I said, I want a week of my vacation. And the manager said, well, if you're that sincere about it, we'll give it to you. I was on my honeymoon experience with Jesus. I woke my father up on Friday, Saturday morning at 4 o'clock. I woke him up. Mom met me at the door. They'd, my sister wanted one of them had called ahead of time and said to my sweet mother, said, Wilbur's got saved and said, he's excited. He won't eat. He won't sleep. We're kind of worried about it. And said, you know, he talks like he's going to become a preacher just to hear him talk. And I knocked on the door and Mama said, Wilbur, I've heard about. And she hugged my neck. She is lost. She's church member. She's lost. And I went out in the back bedroom, woke my dad up. My dad, he, he and I had never really been close, I guess. I was probably the black sheep of the family. I woke him up and it hurt my feelings, so I fell down beside of his bed and I, we called him Papa. That dates us way back there. I said to him, I said, Papa, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. He is real rude with me. He said, there's a time for that. And I said, would you care if I prayed? And he wouldn't answer me. My sweet mother said, just go ahead and pray. My Catholic wife was, boy, she was suspicious of me too. She is scared to death. I told her going through Louisville, Kentucky. I said, honey, don't be surprised if I start preaching. She would say, I have you to know I didn't marry a preacher. I said, well, you may have one now. Amen. I woke my dad up. My sweet mother said, just go ahead and pray if you want to. I fell down beside the bed and I, I realized there was zeal with no knowledge. But listen, I've often said this. I'd rather tone down a fanatic than have to try to resurrect a corpse. Amen. Amen. I mean, we've got a lot of folks with so much head knowledge and, and cold and indifferent. I'm not advocating fanaticism, but there ought to be a balance. Amen. We ought not get cold in our heart because we get a little Bible in our head. So I woke him up in the night and I cried and I prayed and I said, Lord, you saved me. And I don't know what my dad saved or not. I've never heard him pray, God. I've never saw him with a Bible in his head. I've never seen him in church in my life. I said, Lord, would you save him? My mother said at the breakfast table, she said, your dad didn't sleep the last two hours this morning. She said he tossed back and forth and he got up about six o'clock. And she said, that's the first time in years I've seen your dad crying. Said, when you quit praying, he went out of the room. Said, his pillow was all wet with tears. I had the blessed privilege some months after that preaching on a Saturday night. My dad got up and walked down the aisle. I walked with him, fell on his knees and got born again. They called me to the home a few months ago and he reached over and got a big large print Bible. Said to me, said, just finished reading it through the fifth time today. Tears in his eyes and I took him by the hand a few months ago. It'll be a year the 14th of this month, just as he slipped out and went to heaven, I kissed him on the cheek and told him I was glad he's my dad. And I said, I say this honestly, I'd sort of like to be going with you. It's exciting to me to think about going to heaven. I don't want to die. I want to live. But listen, I mean, you can't scare me with heaven. Amen. I'm excited about going to heaven. One fellow told Dr. John R. Rice, said, I think I'll just shoot you. And Dr. Rice said, I, he said, don't you try to scare me with that idea. You can't scare me with the idea of going to heaven. Amen. He said, go ahead and shoot. I'm just going to glory. And so I feel that way tonight. It's a thrill to me to think about going to glory. We went out in the country. My mother went with me on that first trip down there talking about being in love with Jesus. We was riding along, and I said to my mother, our uncle used to have the property. And I said, is that still our uncle's property over there? And she said, no, that's people that run the farm for him. And I said, uh, I said, would you mind waiting in the car? I didn't know the folk. I'd never seen those people. 
I looked out there and I said, Mother, one of those men saved. She said, I don't know. I said, would you mind just waiting until I find out? I pulled my car over, climbed over the uh, fence and two or three strands of barbed wire and with a suit of clothes down across plowed ground about that deep, got up on the back of a drawbar of a tractor and the fellow stopped. I said, sir, I don't mean to be rude and intruder. And God had my heart broke. I was weeping. I said, God saved me just last Monday. This was on Saturday after I got there. I said, I just wonder, are you a saved man? If you died right now, would you go to heaven? Do you know God loves you? Do you know it's a free gift of God's grace? This man started weeping and he said, I'm a backslider. I'm ashamed of myself. I don't go to church anymore. I'm away from God. He said, would you pray with me? I prayed and he shouted all over the tractor, got down over the side, wept and cried. He said, would you tell my son and son-in-law and these hired men out here, would you tell them the same thing you told me? I said, if you will stop them. He said, I'll stop them and put them up at the wagon. And I got up on the wagon load of and preach the half an hour. I told them about the love of God. We had a revival. Went on down to where we was going and it was a community store and about 15 or 20 people in that store. I walked in that grocery store and bought something and God broke my heart. And I said to the woman, are you saved? And she said, yes, but I don't, I don't live like I ought to. And I said, do you know God loves you? And do you know that he wants us to live for him? People's going to hell. And she started weeping and said, would you pray? And right there at the calendar we prayed. And she said, would you tell all these other people and she got a couple of Pepsi cartons. I got up on them and preached 30 minutes in the store. Folks went out that door and that door but about a dozen of them came and sat down out there and wept and cried and some of them got right with God. You say you're sort of fanatical. If you're D.L. Moody said until the world thinks you're a fanatic you're not worth that much for God. Say what you will. The church has become so worldly and the world so churchy you can't hardly tell them apart anymore. Amen. Wait a minute. You know what it is? It puts that kind of fire and devotion in our heart on our honeymoon with Jesus. We need to fall in love with him again tonight. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in my opinion, is one of the greatest preachers probably that ever preached. For 40 years, he packed out the big tabernacle in London, England, as large a building that let him build from five to 6,000 people. Once a month, he asked his regular audience to stay home so visitors could hear him preach. You think about that kind of ministry. Now we have to beg, bar, and steal to get a crowd to preach to. And he'd ask his regular people, one Sunday a month, all of you, please stay home so visitors can get in and hear me preach. They was turned away by the thousands. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached that way 40 years in one place. Mr. Spurgeon said he wanted to so love Jesus Christ that when he looked up to heaven and said, Lord Jesus, I love thee. He said, I want my love to be so sincere Jesus can look right back down and say, Charles, I know you do. You think about that for a moment. I mean, he was a great preacher and he had a great mind and never had any formal training. Didn't even go to high school. That wasn't his secret, his education. Though he was a brilliant man, had a great mind, but it was because he had a big heart. That's why God used him. Amen. He's in love with the Son of God. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? You're not ready to preach, Simon, until you fall in love with me. You're not ready to knock on doors, Simon, till you fall in love with me. You're not ready to pass out tracts. Your service, people say to me, Brother Hurt, why is it we visit, we visit, we visit, and nothing ever happens? It could be we're motivated by some other force other than love. He said, without love, you're nothing. You can have the gift of faith, and you can move a mountain, but if you don't have love or charity, you're still empty, you're nothing. We could have a sermon so polished and we could have all of the homiletics correct and we could have our eyes dotted and our T's crossed and we could know how to present it and all the rest. But unless we're motivated by the mighty love of Jesus Christ, it's just going to be a noise and that's all it'll ever be. That's what the book says. Oh, tonight, 
how we need to fall in love again with the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, and I think I've probably covered the rest of them, but we need to fall in love not only with Christ, but with the church, the local church. I, I, I question, and I, I have a question mark in my mind about a person who loves the church. I don't trust a fellow if he's saved and he despises the local church. I don't trust him. I'm a local church man. I believe today that the Lord, and I believe always, I believe it's been that way, I believe that all of the ministries, whether it's an evangelist or a missionary or whoever, I believe they ought to have a home base through a local Bible-believing church. I believe that with all of my heart. A man said to me in Dallas, Texas area some time ago, he said, well, preacher, the way you're talking, and, and, and there's a group out there, I could call their name, and I'm not afraid to, but I could. These tapes will go all over the country, so I don't want to call the person's name, but I could. I've got the facts, and I know about it personally, and I know all the details. He sent out messages and has on tape recordings and despises the church, bypasses the church, and he has little home Bible studies, and therefore he says the church has failed so he's got little communal studies like hippies get together. And he says, the church, after all, is going under. A man in the Texas area came to me and said, Preacher, what are you going to do? He said, it's obvious the church is falling apart and it's failing and it's going under. I said, the true church is going out. Amen. It's not going under. Everything that's got a shingle up is not a local New Testament church. Just because it's a religious gathering there, it's no sign it's God's church. Jesus said, on this rock, I build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's coming back for the church. He loved the church. And he gave himself for the church. Amen. He only started two institutions on this earth. One of them was the church and the other was the home. And I belong to both of them. Amen. Amen. And I get stirred up if you talk about either one of them. I, my dandruff gets stirred up if you talk about the church. I said the other day, we need some preachers with some backbone and some grit. And one old gal in the church, she thought, oh, that's rather awful for a preacher to talk about getting stirred up. I said to a fellow that came in not long ago and wanted to put his hands on a young woman like a heathen. And I said kindly to him twice. And about the third time, I said, you, over in the corner, listen to me while I preach. I said, listen, if you know if you're going to keep on clowning like you did last night, we'll put you out of here. Amen. Oh, and one old gal looked at me, a reverend would act that way? <laughs> I said the world's conception of Jesus Christ was some kind of anemic sissy. But these little silly pictures you see around with Jesus' long hair like an effeminate down his back, that's not what the Son of God looked like. I can prove more to God he didn't have hair like that. One fellow said to me one time, he said, well, oh, so that was a custom in that day. You don't know your customs. I mean, I've got pictures of the Roman Caesars, the bust of the Roman Caesars and the leaders of that day, and the hair was as short as any man in this building was short hair tonight. And the Bible said it's a shame for a man to have long hair like a woman. God intends for it to be a distinction. One fellow jumped up in the service one night and said, I, I, I got rather rough and plain about it. I said, I wonder about this crowd. I wonder if you powder your nose too. I said, I wonder if you, if you wear lace on your underwear too. And boy, one fellow, he said, he's going to go too far one night. I said, I got a 10-year-old boy can take care of an effeminate looking fellow like you. Boy, he got upset. That one fellow, I was in that meeting for three nights. And I said to the preacher after the first night, and I'm not for being unkind. Before you charge me tonight, I'm not loving folk. Let me ask you how many of that crowd have you won to God? We had a ministry right where they was at. And I'd go on skin row on the strip downtown Indianapolis. Our church had a ministry, and I preached Saturday night from 12 to 2 o'clock in the morning to them. Before you charge me and not loving that crowd, you check up and see. 
We went down there and spent all night with that bunch of dope heads. But I found out you never get them saved. You preach on their dirty sin. Was there not long ago, and the fellow said, "Well, said you know they got to taper off." Said I think we've got a lot of them. It's Christian. He called them Christian homosexuals and Christian drunkards. I said, "Sir, that's a disgrace to God." Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said when he named the effeminate crowd and all the rest of them, he said, such were some of you, past tense, but now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're saved, you're clean. What you used to be, but you're not now. When I said what I did that Monday night, the fellow boy, I said, the preacher, who is that character back there? He said, well, he, he said, this is the second time he's been to church. He's been coming on the outside and, and said he's after these girls. And I said, you know of all people who he's got his hands on church like a heathen? Your piano player. And I said, like a heathen. And God says for young people to flee youthful lust, not neck and pet like heathens. And I said, right in church. And I said, did you ever preach to the fellow? Did you ever get him aside and tell him what God says? I said, listen, I'm not for being unkind, but that man is full of the devil. I said, I witnessed it when I preached to him and looked at him. And I said, he's up to no good. And I said, listen, you're going to give an account for the spirituality of your young people. And if you let a character like him, a rotten apple, spoil the rest of them, God will hold you accountable. I said, sure. You say that? Yes, I'm for letting anyone be welcome to come hear me preach, but not come in and take over the service. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not a smart aleck, but I just believe something. I believe a preacher ought to have some backbone and ought to stand for it. Amen. I wasn't a sissy before God saved me, and I don't believe a Christian, especially a preacher, ought to be a sissy. Amen. I think he ought to have a backbone like a solo. Amen. Amen. fellow said, well, he won't be back after what you said. I said, well, that's God. He heard the truth once. Amen. Next night, there he was. Right back in the service. Now, the first night, I didn't get too, too rough with him. That's the second night. The third night, Man, I had another message plain and straight as a gun barrel that night. God said, preach it, preach it. And he got mad at me the next night. And that night he wanted to stare at me. Well, I'd stare too. I'd prop up like this and I'd look at him and I'd preach and I'd point my finger at him. The power of God fell. We had 14 people come forward on the first verse of the invitation. He was the first one. Came screaming, running. Fell down right here on Wednesday night. He got saved, and I heard later that it was real for him. He got up, and he said to the church, he apologized to the preacher. He apologized. He'd been pushing dope in that area. He'd come in that area from Connecticut or somewhere else down the east, and he'd been there pushing dope. He hung around the high school, and he said, I've never, he said, we named two churches. He said, my buddies and I have been going in singing off-key and making faces at the reverend, and it would scare them to death, and they'd let out early. But he said, you know, I've been needing somebody to look me in the face and tell me the truth like this fellow did. And he said to me, he shook hands with me, and he said, boy, you made me mad last night. But he said, you know, I went home and couldn't sleep, and I said, that's right, I'm not a man. Why, well, I'm everything he said. And he said, something brought me back tonight. Well, we know who brought him back. It wasn't something, it's someone, the Holy Ghost. Amen. And after we started leaving, you know what he said to me? He put his hands down in his pocket. He said, would you let me give you something? I didn't know what a fellow like him wanted to give me. I said, well, if he won't, he said, I just want to give it to you. And he clicked it, and it was a switchblade knife with a blade that long. Oh, I told a fellow with me, if I'd have known that had been in his pocket, I wouldn't have been talking about powder on your nose, amen? <laughs> I wouldn't have been talking about wearing, wearing lace on your underwear if I'd have known he had that in his pocket. I've got that old big knife at home. My wife said the other day, what are you going to do that old big switchblade? I said, I just want to keep it to remind the devil I got it off a hippie, amen? Are <laughs> oh, you listening to me? 
this little crowd, this little crowd of sissy preachers that's, uh, that's afraid to preach the word of God. That's the number one problem in America is preachers in the pulpits of our country with no backbone. Fall in love with the church. I'm for the church. I have a pastor. If you'd say something about him in my presence, I'll get stirred up about it. I love my pastor. And if you're worth the salt and your bread tonight, you love your pastor. I often say in churches where I go, if you don't respect your pastor and don't love him, you ought to get your letter and get out. You are a hindrance to him and the church and everyone else. And if you do love him, you ought not let anyone else run him down. And you ought to let him know that you love him and appreciate him. I mean, I said last night, I count the privilege of being here in the pulpit of Brother Jerry Huber. I don't really know Brother Jerry. I met Brother Jerry through a dear friend of ours that was preaching when he got saved. I run a meeting for this man down in, in, in Tennessee and he asked me if I knew Jerry. And I said, no, I don't know him. I said, I preached down in the Cloverdale area, but I don't know Jerry. And the next time that he came in this area, Brother Jerry and this preacher came, we had, had breakfast together. Brother Jerry asked me to come, and I said, I'll be glad to. And I said from the first time that I met him, one thing that so impressed me was our dear brother's sincerity. His heart's in it. He means business. He's 100%. And I go with preachers across this country that's not 100%, that's not real, it's a little profession with them, and they're in it for what they can get out of it, not because they've been called and they love Christ and love the church, they're in it as a little profession, and you ought to appreciate your pastor because God's men across this country is few tonight and far between. I know what I'm talking about. Preach all over the country. He listened to me. He said to me the last time, he said, Brother Hurt, our church is not the biggest church in the world. And he said, we've got good people and they're my people. He said, I love them. Big tears came to his eye. I said, God bless you, Jerry. I appreciate preaching for a pastor like that. I really do. And I had some folks, and when you worked out forward, many of my folk, you know, work, and this brother works it forward, and many of our men, and one fellow didn't like me. I said to my wife and I, can you imagine a fellow not liking me? But uh, there was one not liking me, you know. And I said, he got ugly at me. And I said, as sweet as I am, can you imagine a person getting ugly at me? But there was a fellow who got ugly at me. He came to hear me, and he said, no, it hurts all right. But he said, I don't want him for a seven-day-a-week diet. Now, I'll tell you that right now. And he is out there, and I think he is. He is from a liberal church, and I said something about it, and, and I didn't know the shoe fit him, but he, he preached in a, he taught a Sunday school class and smoked stinking cigars and went to the theater and drank a social drink. I say he needs to get born again. I don't, I mean, I'd have felt bad if that fellow had liked my preaching. I'd have been vaccinated if he did like me. So he said to some of our men out there, well, I don't know about him. One of our men said, well, what do you got to say about him? Huh. Boy, he went away later and told the fellow, he said, old Hurt's got that old bunch over there. He said, them's Hurtites, and he's got them brainwashed. He said, that fellow knocked you in the head if you say anything about it. And I said, hallelujah. I mean, it ought to be that way. You ought to not let people run your church down and run your preacher down. I know folks that belong to a bunch of little silly lodges, and they want to fight if you talk about their little silly lodge. But you can cuss their church and run their church down, talk about their preacher, and they don't have backbone enough and grit enough to say one word in defense of it. God pity you tonight. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. And we ought to so love the church. Amen? One fellow said, oh, preacher, he came to our place with a singing group. And I said, where you go to church? Oh, I don't belong to any certain church now. All of them's mine. I just believe and belong to the main church. Uh, he didn't want any responsibility. He wanted to be a church tramp and a church hopper from here to here and here. 
And I said, wait a minute, I don't want to be unkind, but you, he said, I love these singers and I just go with them from week to week. And he said, no, all churches are mine. I don't, I said, suppose every member, we got 300 tonight, suppose every member of Bethel Baptist Church felt that way. You walked on carpet someone else paid for. You're sitting in pews someone else paid for. You're enjoying air condition someone else paid for. I said, suppose all our members felt like you did. What would the church do? Away of that kind of foolishness. You're not right with God. You're not dedicated. You don't love the church. You don't love Jesus Christ. If you love Him, you'll love His church. You say, I don't like that. I can't help it. It's still the truth. God didn't call me to preach what folk like. God called me to preach the Word of God. I don't trust a fellow that don't tithe. They used to tell folks that wouldn't tithe, I'd lock my smokehouse when they come around. Amen. Tie up my dog. Keep my eye on my wife when he is around. Amen. If he steal from God, he'd probably steal from you. You say, I don't believe that. You're not right with God. Tithe belongs in the local church. God talks about the proportion, the place, and the purpose of tithing. So to be meat in my house. First missionary you have is your pastor. Take care of him. Find out what his needs are. Pastor has, has more needs than the other member of the church. I mean, they don't, you don't drive up to the, you don't drive up to the filling station, fill up the tank with gas and quote him John 3.16, drive all. He'll slap you in the face if you do. He has to pay for gas like you do. Yet, average church never really stops to consider how much it takes for a pastor to operate. You men, I don't know anything about your church here, but you men, you ought to find out if your pastor's got needs. I know it's honorable for a pastor to work until the church gets to the place they can take care of them. I'm not saying that. And no one else can tell a pastor or a preacher when to go full time or make any decision but God. And if you listen to people try to tell you, you may get out on a limb and get it cut off. That's why when this dear brother came up that night, I said, Lord, did I call him to go full time or did you do it? God said, I did it. And so when I went full time, my own relation said, you're crazy. You leave a job, and that was pretty good money back then, $6 an hour, and you take a church that's paying you $30 a week, you're crazy. I said, if I am pray, I'll get worse. Amen. But you men ought to find out. You ought to find out what the needs of the pastor is, what his needs are. Love the church, love Christ. I'll just mention the third, and then we'll, we'll close. We ought to fall in love again with our calling. Oh, I'll never forget tonight God called me to preach. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I, I ran from it for two or three weeks. But about 12 people in the prayer meeting in the little church on the south side of Indianapolis. I was on the front seat. Prayer time, they had them just to kneel and they took times the men did and the ladies wanted another place to pray. While I was praying, God said, tell it tonight. Tell it tonight. Boy, I told it. I rolled my sleeve up. I preached. I cried. <laughs> my wife hadn't got saved yet. She thought I'd done cracked up for sure. She said, listen, and yet... My wife was saved just a little while after that. I didn't start preaching for quite a while, but I wasn't saved but just a few months. I think only about two months when I announced my call to preach. Boy, I, I, I get excited thinking about it. I say, Lord, I, I'm honest about this. I say this in the fear of God. I'd rather die and go on to heaven and get out of the way than to be become mechanical in my ministry. Amen. Just time to preach so we get up and preach. Just time to teach so we get up and teach. If we ever get to place, we lose the excitement and the thrill and the privilege of just being able to preach the Word of God and to know that we've been called with our high and holy calling. I have two boys and a little girl. One of my boys came home one day and he wanted to talk to me. And he said, Daddy, I, I need to talk to you. But he said, and my boy, this boy's 10. This is when I think he's about 8. 
And Paul said that. I need to talk to you. He said, I don't really know how to put it. But he said, uh, he said, well, I have a problem. He said, I, I don't know whether I was right or wrong. But he said, I got upset at school today with some boys. And he said, they're running you down. I said, running me down? He said, yeah, daddy. He said, uh, they're running you down. And he said, they're talking about what their dads did and what my dad did. And said, he said, your dad's a lazy man. Preachers are lazy people. Preachers don't work. They beg for money. And Paul said, Daddy, before I knew it, I got up and said, my daddy works seven days a week. He works about 15 hours a day. He don't beg for nothing. He works long hours. And don't you say my daddy's lazy. He said, if you do. And Paul, I said, he said, I'm not going to tell you what I almost done. But he said, Daddy, I almost did. And I hugged his neck and said, God bless you, Paul. Amen. Amen. I bought my boys boxing gloves. I don't want to raise some effeminate sissies. Homosexuals are not born that way. They're made that way. You ask any psychologist and you'll find that had a domineering mother that kept him under her apron string and wouldn't let him be a rough and tussle boy and play football or get ruffled up a little afraid he'd get his nose mashed and therefore he grew up with a wrong conception of what a man is. You ask any psychologist that's taken a study and they'll tell you not a sickness, it's a dirty, wicked sin. I used to say to our young people, not be bullies, no. And for Christ's sake, you be willing to take some punishment and some ridicule. But I often said, if someone slapped one of my boys, I don't want him to be such sissy, he'd open up his little purse and take out a sending uh, Kleenex and wipe his tears. Amen. I want him to be that way. I want him to be me. And I think, oh, to feel that way. I said that up in Michigan. That's when the woman said, oh. I said, when Jesus Christ walked in the temple one time and there was a bunch of devils in there desecrating the house of God, you know what the Son of God did? He walked over and made him a whip out of some cords, came over, took his foot, kicked the table over, came across their back and said, get out of here! You mean the lowly Lord Jesus? Yes, the lowly Son of God was not a sissy. He was a man. But you see, a real mark of manhood, when a man needs courage, he'll have it. But when they throw a poor, pitiful woman caught an act of adultery and want to stone her, the other side of manhood, he can weep with those that have a need. But he can stand tall as a man when there needs to be too. We got a bunch of liberal sissies running across this country today advocating love, love, love. They wouldn't know love if they met him out here in the street. It's lust, not love. Love is always based on a principle. Love is always on the side of right. Same crowd, it's strange to me. They hollered and hollered about being in Vietnam. And hollered and hollered. But the same crowd is advocating this wicked law they're pushing now of abortion. And it's nothing short of murder. Where's the love now? If that crowd of sisters and liberals want to holler and they're a bunch of communists and a bunch of socialists and they're against what America was built on and they're saying, get up, give up, surrender. I'm still American. I'd put a uniform on tonight and go to battle a minute. And I renounce and I resent this bunch of loafers and bunch of cowards and de deserters. I resent them bringing them back and dumping them off in our state. Amen. You say what you will. You want to buy a message on it? I got one right over there called Spiritual Draft Dodgers. Amen. Listen to me tonight. I believe in what America was built upon. We used to have some men. Where's men? This wicked women's live. They said, now we heard you preach. The one that brought it out wrote a letter and he said, we heard you preach a couple weeks ago and we'd like for you to say 
against them at the convention center downtown Indianapolis in March. We'd like for you to come and just present that portion of your message. If you'd be willing to do it. I told my wife, check my schedule, see where I'm at. I think I'm in Louisiana that week. I said, but if I could be here, I said, boy, wouldn't that get to be something? Go down there and just stand up and, and, and in defense of something that's right, that's holy. And I know, listen, any woman that's right with God, she appreciates and she enjoys her God-given place as a wife and a mother. God's never called women, and you ladies, just excuse me, if you get upset, it shows your color. But God has never called a woman to run anything. Put a woman governor in one of the states. I said, and there must not be many Bible believers in that state. I said, a person that votes for a woman governor, you're not right with God. I was out in Oklahoma not long ago, and the preacher, we weren't calling, and there's one, just one industry, big old sawmill there, or rough sawmill, right there in the Indian reservation. I was preaching for an Indian church, and I said to him, is that a woman? And uh, he said, yeah. She had a hard hat on. She had her big overhauls on, big old rough gloves hanging here, big old rough bogan boots. And I looked at her and I said, that woman works in that? Yeah, preacher. We went to the home to call on them. She had a little squeaky hen-pecked husband there in the front room. He said to her, he said, the preachers are here to see you. She said, well, we're rather busy right now. I said, if I... Well, when we left, I said to that dear missionary, I'm against divorce and separation, but I'd have to pray hard to say something like that, amen? <laughs> say what you will. Call me anything you want to call me. And I can support what I'm saying in this blessed old book. There was a day when some folks had these kind of convictions. Our country's in a different shape. Amen? You may have just cut me off there and let me go ahead and preach. Fall in love all over again with Christ, with our calling, with the church. And then I'll just mention it, but with our companion, our children, that's a home love. You know, as I said last night, you know what, we've, we've, we've raised a generation of children that's missed the vital thing in life, and that's being loved by a godly mother. Or I'm just saying by a decent mother. We've sown to the wind, and we're reaping the whirlwind. I pulled up in the Cumberland Mountains on the holiday weekend. I think it was the Labor Day of this past year, or maybe it was the year before. They'd told me how many hundred thousands of kids in the Rock Festival. They'd blocked the highways. You couldn't get through there. And I was speaking over in North Carolina, so I drove back up in that way, and on my next meeting, I just, the kid, I couldn't describe what was going on. I, I stopped, and I was looking out, and there was a little girl. I learned later she's about 14. She, in her face, the features of her face resemble my little girl, Becky, a little bit. And I, I just looked. You could look at her. See, sin has its way. It leaves its mark, especially on a young lady. I mean, you can look in the face of a young lady, and you can just about read her her history. She's not aware of it most of the time, but I can speak to a youth group and talk about certain things, and it just about always shows up on the face, especially the young ladies. There it was. It left its mark in her character, and it showed up on her face, and I began to weep. God broke my heart. I found out she'd never had a mother. She'd had a mother when she was just small. She never really knew her, but her mother, all she could remember about knocking cigarette ashes off in her face. Kicked around. When she was 12 and 13, she's going on 15 now, but when she was 12 and 13, sleeping in the gutters, and she was from all the way across the country. And I sat there and wept, and I talked to another young fellow, not, a, not an ignoramus, a man that had graduated from a leading university, middle 20s. He said, I said, you're not happy. Your face tells on you. The Bible says what's in your heart will be displayed right here. I, he said, church people's hypocrites. I said, you're the biggest bunch of hypocrites. You hippies, you've got to work this up. That's not real and you know it. 
And I said, you get a thrill for a moment. I've been on your side of the track. I know you can thrill your flesh for a little while, but it leaves you frustrated and empty and lonely. And I said, you never had a mom and dad that loved you, did you? No, I didn't. And I resented. And I'm mad at God and everybody else. He said, I didn't. He said, listen. He said, it's not right. And I drove away from her thinking, Lord, it's not right. Those kids were brought into this world and they couldn't have, they didn't have anything to do with it. And it's not right to bring children into this world and deny them the greatest and the highest privilege on earth. And that's knowing the Son of God, Amen. the love of God. You know why we got so many kids today? And I talked to a psychologist some time ago as a Christian man. He said, preacher, in the last 15, 20 years. I mean, he has, he has his patients there. Many of them are teenagers. And he said, many of them, even younger than that, frustrated, innocent, care, insecure, worried, wanting to shoot themselves. And you know what he attributed that to? And I suggested, he said, yes, sir, you hit the nail on the head. They've been raised in a home where mom and dad wasn't in love with each other. And the kids suffer. Mom, if you and dad stay on your honeymoon in the home and your children know it, that little boy and girl is going to say, boy, my mom and dad's in love with each other. And they let each other know it and we know it. They'll grow up with a secure feeling because they know they're in a home where mom and dad are in love. But they hear the average home of cursing and, and, and fretfulness and anxiety and screaming and hollering unconsciously they are warped in their personality with a sense of insecurity and they get nervous, maladjusted, they don't know what it is, but they suffered their fall in the home. That's why I say, work on your marriage. Stay on your honeymoon. Amen. I got a message I preach on the home. It's right there called How to Safeguard Your Home. And I was preaching it not long ago and I got on the, on the safeguard of love and I said, well, to express our love. I said, how long has it been, fellas, since you told your wives you loved them and you appreciate them? And one woman about four pews back, she looked right up at him out loud. It was rather still and silent and boy, if you could hear all the glory. She said, he's talking to you. <laughs> boy, his face got as red as that carpet. I didn't dare look at him anymore. I preached looking up. I'd look over this way. Boy, I glanced at that fellow and he was sitting there. She brought him up there after the service and she said, tell him. He said, she knows I love her. She said, I don't know how I'd know it. You hadn't said it in over a year. I said, listen, fellow. I said, we were just talking coming down here. I told him if God ever lets me pastor again. I said, I believe it's vital. I believe we have to, especially with young couples. There's so much to tear up this part of our home life. I believe a man of God, the pastor, has to... T and so I'd have him come personally. And we'd deal with the intimate, intimate parts of our life. And I'd sit down with them and I'd talk with them 99 times out of 100 when the marriage falls apart. It's right there because they didn't work on their marriage and didn't keep the honey in their honeymoon. I've said to fellows, you don't stay in love with your wife, some other beastly devil will. I've said oftentimes, lady, if you don't stay warm towards your husband, there's a Jezebel that will. You work on your marriage. You say that's plain. It's time somebody got plain with a home that's falling apart today. Amen. You keep the honey in your honeymoon. Stay sweet with each other. And I'll guarantee you, he won't be looking at some Jezebel winking at him. He won't. Ha I mean, he can't hardly wait to get back home. If you stay on your honeymoon, you enjoy being in the presence of the one you love. One woman said, "When I, I got an entire sermon, I preach on the honey in the honeymoon." And I talk about the characteristics of the honeymoon experience. I said there was considerateness then. You was considered with each other. I said, boy, he'd open the car door. Now, I don't let my wife listen to that tape, amen. But uh, I said, uh, he'd open the car door. And I said, now, nah, I know one fellow. I said, there's three or four youngins later. And I said, he's in the car blowing the horn. And she's got a purse here and a diaper bag here. One in this arm, two dragons. And before she can get in, he drags her down the street. Hollering, Hosey, come on. And I preached that in the church. And I didn't know they'd done that that morning before they came. 
And boy, his wife, he said, she said to me later, she said, boy, you described us. And she said, Brother Hurt, they knew me, been friends for a long time. Said, Brother Hurt, be sure and tell him tonight I didn't tell on him. Amen. But oh, how we need that. We need to fall in love all over again. Not only Christ, the church, our calling, our companion, our children, but we need to fall in love with our commission. Do you know we're under orders from heaven to do something? I'm for services getting together and shouting and praising God and having a good time. I'm for that. But you know what the church really is? The church is just the fueling station, if I can put it that way, to give us what we need to go out there and work. The church is the place where we put gas in our tank, where we get the spark in our battery so we can go out on the field and we're under commission from heaven to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I wonder if you love sinners tonight. Oh, how we need to stop and put your whole sermon, but I'm through. Love sinners. Are you still in love with sinners? We went in homes today. I spent about three hours knocking on doors with a deacon today and we went in homes of business people out on 40 there in Greenfield where we live and went into another home and a woman was cold and backslid and God's power fell and she's coming tomorrow. Went into another home where there's a man there and he he came to our service as a visitor last Sunday night when we showed the film on the burning hell and he said, Preacher, that sure gave me something to think about. And he started weeping. He said, Oh, I'm saved, but I'm just, he said, I, I tell you, I moved out here and I haven't gotten church and I'm cold. And there said a son-in-law lost and he had other children lost. And I said, You'll never get your people saved if you get on fire for God. I said, can you, can you feature your children screaming in that lake of fire? Can you feature your own flesh and blood like you saw? And I said, I know that film. That film is one of the greatest films on the subject I've seen. But that film couldn't even start to touch the hem of the garment on what it's really like. The Sword of the Lord Foundation has just put out that film on the burning hell. Estes Perkle is the one that moderated and then the Ormond, I think, uh, uh, film production is the one produced it. A great film, if you can see it. You ought to go see it. It'll stir your heart. We had it in our church last Sunday night. I sat there. I had the night off and I went with my family to see it. And I sat there in tears and said, Oh God, Lord Jesus, that's why that he'd go in the night, in the mountains at night and pray all night. That's why he who was rich became so poor. He knew what goes on in hell. He knew and he still knows. That's why he would say birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That's why he said, you count the cost before you say you're going to follow me. That's why he pulled back the curtain of eternity and said two people have lived, now they've died, and one of them in hell. He screamed, said, somebody go back. Go on, my brothers. Keep them out of hell. Keep them out of this place. I wonder if we, are, if we, could, if we need to fall in love with our commission again tonight. Did you know we're ambassadors from another country? We're under orders. And he, an ambassador is one that represents his country and he has the message of peace from his country. Did you know tonight that we're ambassadors under orders from heaven? And we're going to have to give an account to how we conduct ourselves one day. He's about to call us out. Ambassadors always called home before war is declared. And we're going out before the tribulation. He's about ready to take us out because God's going to drop judgment on this wicked world. I wonder if you're a good ambassador tonight. I wonder if you're holding up the message from the other country. I wonder if you're holding up the blood-stained banner tonight. I close with an illustration God's laid on my heart. And Brother Harry, of course, has run off the tape here. And so we probably won't even put this one because it's on another tape. But let me close with this. I was preaching on the south side of Indianapolis, I would guess, eight years ago, something like that. There was a, I was Monday through Saturday there. 
And there was two men, older men, came into our service on Thursday night. One of the men of the church brought these men. They came in. They had a seat over here, all four pews back where they sat. And he came up here. I was on the platform, and he called me over the rail, and he said to me, he said, Preacher, he said, these men knew your father in the Southland. They grew up with him and said, uh, that's the means I've used to get them here, so they've come to hear you preach because they knew your father. He said, they're nervous, they're uneasy. He said, I just thought if you'd walk back and meet them, it'll make them a little more comfortable. They can listen to you a little better. And so, of course, I went back and met those men. I learned later one of them was in mid, uh, middle 70s, the other in early 80s. Those men, to look at them, you can see sin had beat them to death. I mean, they had the big red tomato nose that it leaves them, men that drink all their life and the bloodshot veins and all the rest. And one of them on an artificial limb and the other with a cane. You could tell sin had beat those old men to death. I went over and greeted those men, told them I was glad they was there. And I said, after the service, I want to meet you. I want to talk with you. I want to ask you some questions about my dad when he's a young man. And so after the service, I preached the best I could. And it didn't seem that they were visibly shaken. But I met them, talked with them. They said they'd try to come back. They did. Friday night, this back. It was a little bit closer. God dealt with those men. Saturday night, that was the last night of the meeting. I went back to my church. Saturday night, I don't often go back in the audience. But if God asks me to, I will. And I walked over with heads bowed and eyes closed. And those men, especially the one that was in his 80s, he was holding the pew like that, shaking. He had gripped that until the, his hands across here was real white. We'd cut the circulation off. Just, just dumbfounded, just stand there. Wouldn't, wouldn't answer me, wouldn't say a word. I tried my best to get him. He wouldn't come. He wouldn't come. I did everything I knew to do, but still he wouldn't come. After service, I tried to win him to God after service. I showed him the Bible, but they still, no, no. They're not ready to turn to the Lord. They're not ready yet. Make a long story short, I got a telephone call. I would guess three, four months after that. It was the younger of those two men. And uh, he identified himself, and I said, sure, I remember you. And I asked about his friend, and he said, that's why I'm calling. These men had no family in Indianapolis. He said they lived together, had a room and apartment together in the south side of Indianapolis. And he said something like this. He said, preacher, the reason I called, he's in General Hospital in Indianapolis. And said, he's talked about you every day since he heard you preach. Said he likes you. You're the only preacher he's ever liked. Said he likes you. And said he believes you're sincere and all the rest. And he said, I was at the hospital. He's dying. He knows it. The doctors have told us. No hope for him. And said, when I got ready to leave visiting hours night, he called me about 10 o'clock in the night. He said, he asked me to call Preacher Hurt. It's a term he used. Asked me to call Preacher Hurt and see if he'll come out here and tell me how to get saved. I'm talking about falling in love with their commission, taking advantage of opportunities. Now listen carefully. It was about 10.15 when we hung the phone up. And he said, Preacher, I don't think it'd be necessary to go tonight. He knew I got up early. I had to be at work at 4 o'clock. I told him I got up oh, a little before 3. And he said, well, it's already after 10. By the time you drive from Eastgate out to, out to the west northwest side of town, said, and get back. And he said, it'll be midnight or after. And he said, use your own judgment, but I don't think it's necessary for you to go tonight. He said, he, he is dying. He knows it. The doctors know it. But said, I think he'll be around days yet. And I told the man, I said, I think I'll just go. He said, use your own judgment. I hung the phone out. I told my wife. I said to my wife, I said, he asked me to use my own judgment. And I said, uh, I think I'll just go to bed. I get up uh, 2.30, quarter three, and I said, I'll go out there tomorrow at noon. I got off from work about noon, and I did. I drove out 56th Street and came into the hospital area. Knocked or went up and started to knock on the door, and there was a man standing there by the door, and he said to me, Brother, when I started to push the door open, he said, Just a moment, sir. He said, They're busy in there, said so they'll be right out, and then you can go in. He no more said that to me till the door opened, and there was a man come out like this on the bed. Another man, of course, another end pushing. There was a body, of course, covered. 
And I just froze in my tracks. I couldn't move. They had to excuse themselves, and I still couldn't move. I just looked. I, all I could think of, oh, no. No, it couldn't be. It couldn't be. Finally, they, the elevator was right next there. They finally got turned and got on the elevator, and they looked at me, and I guess they thought I maybe was a member of the family, and so they was not unkind to me. And they excused and pulled the bed over and went around me. I walked inside the room, and sure enough, they turned his bed up a little like this, and I saw his name. The name of that old man. A younger man was sitting here on the side of his bed with his feet hanging off with his head down like that. I walked in, still couldn't say a word. A couple of nurses picking up the few personal belongings he had, and they thought, I guess, I was a member of the family. And they was very kind to me and said, you can go ahead and stay, sir. We're taking this stuff down to the nurse station. His body will be down tomorrow. I still couldn't say a word. I just stood there. I was choked with emotion. I tried to say something to the man. I still couldn't talk. And finally, I said to that man, I said, sir, let me ask you two or three questions. And he said, he said, yes, sir. I said, was you in here when this happened? He said, yes, sir. I said, how long? How long? He said, just a few minutes ago it happened. I said, was he conscious? He said, all the way. I just heard him struggling for breath and said, I looked over there and I realized it was happening. And I called the nurse. He was gone. And he got in here. I said, sir, let me ask you a question. Was you in here last night when his friend was here? And he said, yes, sir. I said, did a preacher, anyone get in since last night up till noon today and talk to this man? He said, no. And said, you know, he told me after his friend left, said, there's a preacher coming out here tonight. Said, I want you to meet him. Said, I think you'll like him. And he said, mister, that, that old man told me that he wasn't ready to meet God and that preacher's going to tell him how to get saved when he gets here. Said, he's going to have to meet God and he needs to be saved. But he said, you know, I went to sleep at midnight and the old man's still awake. And said, he said, maybe his preacher's tied up and gone or something. But he said, this morning when I woke up, said, that old man never did go to sleep. He stayed awake all night. And he said, early this morning, that preacher will be here this morning. He'll come. But he said, you know, that preacher never did come. And that old man died. And said, he said himself he wasn't ready to meet God. And I couldn't talk. I've told that thousands of times. and I, I told it the other night and dreamed about it in the motel room 500 miles from here. It haunts me to, yet today. I said to that man, sir, I'm the preacher that let him go to hell. He said, I, I'm sorry. I wouldn't have said what I did. I said, that's all right. And I just broke out crying. I said, I let him go to hell. I let him go to hell. I went out and went into a room that I could close the door and I wept and cried and I said, God, please, I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. From now on, I'll do my best. If I have to go day and night, I'll do my best to try to keep somebody out of hell. Lord, don't ever let me get to the place I don't care. Lord, don't ever let me lose the vision that that's what it's all about. So, don't talk to me about what you've got if you don't love sinners. If you don't try to win your neighbors to God, if you're not a soul winner, and if you go enough, you'll finally get some. But if you're not winning people to God, I'm not interested in all you've got. Because when you get close to Jesus, and fall in love with Him, you know what will happen? He'll shed abroad His love in your heart and my heart. And we'll love sinners. That's supernatural. We can't do it in the flesh, but He does it through us. I don't know all that it means when He requires their blood at our hands, as Ezekiel said, but perhaps that old man's blood will be on my hands. I wonder how much blood will be on your hands. I preach a sermon sometimes used to on bloody hands. I wonder how much blood will be on my hands at the judgment. How much will be on your hands as a Christian? How much will be on your church? How much will be on my church? How many people we let go to hell in our community 
because we don't go out. You see, the average church don't have a visitation program knocking on doors. And you know why some cultures outgrowing Bible-believing churches? They're out knocking on doors doing what Bible believers used to do. In Bible days, they went day and night knocking on doors. Paul said when he was over in Ephesus three years, he said, you know, day and night, how with tears I knocked on your doors. Talk to you about Jesus. We need to fall in love with our commission all over again and just go. Just go. Just go. Just go. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.